Even though it may look like you're coming in first, the first will be last, as Jesus said. And the judgment seat of Christ is a place where God looks not simply at quantity, but at quality. He will scrutinize your service. And if what you did, you did in the energy of the flesh, it will be worthless in that day. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 14 of our study in Romans and have been looking at what we might call gray areas of the Bible, behaviors the Bible does not specifically address, but which some Christians might feel comfortable exercising while others might consider sinful. We've already seen that as Christians, we are called to be considerate of the spiritual maturity of others and that ultimately our goal should be to please Christ. But as we delve a little further into our chapter today, Dr. Brogy will give a little more insight into how we as Christians ought to be guarding our behavior because of the Lordship of Christ. We're not to cause another brother to stumble, even though he may not have the liberty to do a certain thing. And we'll look further at that next time. And so wanting us to be able to discern based on the principles of Scripture because we are not simply to live for ourselves, but for Christ, Paul is going to underscore two critical truths today. And by the way, if you have children in your home, or you have a ministry to your grandchildren, or just people in general, especially teenagers, what you need to give them is not just a list of do's and don'ts. They need to see that your authority comes from the Word of God. They need to understand the principles by which you base that decision on. So we're going to underscore just two of them today, two reasons why we should guard our behavior. Reason number one, you should guard your behavior because of the Lordship of Christ. Because of the Lordship of Christ. Notice again verses 7 and 8. For one... For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. What is he saying? He's saying the same thing he told the Corinthians. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price, so you are to live to glorify God in your body. It's not up to you to say, who am I going to marry? It's not up to you to say, what am I going to do professionally in this life? It's not up to you to say, what am I going to wear? What am I going to drink? Because you're not your own. These verses remind us here that we cannot say that it doesn't really matter what my fellow Christian or brother thinks about an issue because I'm not my own. Verse 7 plainly says, for not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. I'm not to live for myself. I'm not to die for myself. Whether I live or I die, I am to do it all for the glory and the honor of the Lord. You might want to, in a parallel chapter where Paul addresses similar issues, put out next to verse 7, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Put that in the margin of your Bible. Let me read it to you. There the apostles said, whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Now, if you can drink a beer for the glory of God, then do it. If you can smoke a cigarette for the glory of God, then do it. Smoke it. I don't think you can. Now, don't take my word for it and come back next time and let's reason together from the Scripture. 
But you apply the question to any given situation that you may be in, does this glorify God? And you will have an answer. And if you're living for Jesus Christ, and if you're under his lordship, then you're not afraid to ask that question. That's the question you want to ask. He plainly says here in verse 8, for if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. He's underscoring that we are to live under the lordship of Christ. Jesus Christ shed his precious blood, not so that you could serve the world, the flesh, and the devil. In fact, he emphatically says, look at verse 9, for to this end, the glory of God, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. By the way, did you see the references all the way beginning in verse 6 through verse 9 of the, the, the term Lord or God or Christ? I have it underlined 10 times in my Bible. Let me go through and emphasize it. You might want to underscore it there in your text. He observes the day, observes it for the Lord. He, in he who eats, does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat. And gives thanks to God. Not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. Or if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. This is another great text of scripture affirming the deity of Christ because the term Lord God, Christ is referring to one person because Jesus is God, he is Lord, he is Messiah. And so let me ask you, are you doing what you are doing for the Lord? That's the emphasis of the text. If he is Lord, if he is master over you today as a believer, then are your decisions and your convictions under his lordship? Again in verse 9, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. You see, the problem with many of us is that in the recesses of our heart, we've already made up our minds. No one is going to tell me whether I can have a glass of beer. No one is going to tell me whether I can smoke an occasional cigar. No one is going to tell me whether I can do such and such. And you're right, no one can. No one should, but God should. And if you have ears to hear, the question becomes, if he speaks clearly from his word, what does he say? But some of us have wax in our ears and we don't want to hear. Don't confuse me with the truth. Because we have our minds made up. And I am convinced if you are willing to submit to the Lordship of Christ, there will be some things that will fall out of your life and there will be other things that will come into your life and you don't need some legalist to argue you into a certain lifestyle because God will teach you with the principles found here in the Word. So Paul's point is that whatever we do, if we are the Lord's, then we will live for the Lord. And listen, would Jesus Christ be embarrassed by some of the things that you do? Listen, say whatever you want to say, eat whatever you want to drink, eat, drink whatever you want to drink, see whatever you want to see, do whatever you want as long as he's pleased. But if there's a sense on the inside that you're coming very close to that invisible boundary where he would not be pleased. 
Our goal as a believer is not to see how close we can get to sin, but how far away from sin we can be. And so the first principle that he underscores out of six in this chapter is that you should guard your behavior because of the Lordship of Christ. Now there's a second principle, and it's a very familiar one, but since God brings it up again, I'm going to bring it up again because God needs to remind us again. Guard your behavior because of the judgment seat of Christ. Guard your behavior because of the judgment seat of Christ. To some of you, this is an old principle, but sometimes familiarity breeds contempt, and we are so familiar with the doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ, we've just kind of let it fade into oblivion and it has very little effect on us. And some of us are hearing it today for the very first time. Paul asks the weak questions here in verse 10 a question. Notice, but you, why do you judge your brother? And then he turns to the strong Christian, he asks, or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? He is asking both groups why it is that they are taking on the role of judge. Don't they realize that all judgment has been given to the Son? For he says here, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And to back it up, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, the 45th chapter, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. By the way, Paul applies this text to the Lord Jesus because he is God in his letter to the Philippians. So then, verse 12, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now let me further qualify and explain letting Scripture interpret Scripture on this whole doctrine of judgment. There is obviously a time for Christians to judge. The same one who said, judge not lest you be judged, also said in John chapter 7 and verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Someone asked me about a situation in a church they had left. They had a lady in their church who claimed to be saved. She had said she received Christ. She had joined their church. But on Saturday night, she was involved in very lewd behavior. And on Sunday morning, she would come and participate in the church, serve in the nursery, and partake of the Lord's Supper. And she said, now, I don't mean to be judgmental, but is that right? And shouldn't the leadership do something? I mean, if she's a stripper on Saturday night, is it right for her to serve on Sunday mornings? I said, no, that's not being judgmental. That doesn't fit into God's way of thinking. But that's not what Romans, the 14th chapter, is speaking about. He's talking about believers in their church who love God, who are attempting to serve Jesus Christ. He's not talking about issues of doctrinal orthodoxy, and he's not talking about moral issues that are plainly spelled out. He's talking about issues that they have raised in the church that are not clearly spelled out. And he wants us to understand the principles that that we would not be divisive. Now, there's a difference between biblical judging and being judgmental. There's a difference between uh, having a critical spirit and being a critical thinker. And Paul, in effect, is saying here, stop being judgmental and critical towards one another over gray areas. Why, Paul? Why should I? And he's going to tell us why. Here in the latter part of verse 10, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. He's speaking about a very, very serious judgment. 
And I hope the truths found here in verses 10 through 12, that God will be able to etch them into our souls, that he'll be able to seal it into our hearts, that he will reverberate these truths in our mind, that we won't complacently just walk away and miss the importance of this, especially as it relates to the way we treat one another, because that's how Paul is applying it. So then, each one of us, verse 12 says, will give an account of himself to God. One day, you will stand face to face with Christ as I will, and he will say, this is your life. Now again, understand, this is not the judgment that is spoken of in Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment. This is the judgment of believers. Paul uses the first person plural pronoun. So then each one of us, including himself, will give an account of himself to God. We've already studied in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sins will not be brought up against us because of one who bore the penalty. And if you've believed in him, the one who believes in him, Jesus said in John 3.18, is not judged. Because Christ took all of the judgment and all of the condemnation that our sin deserves. So this is not a judgment for sin. This is a judgment for service. But remember, if my heart is not right, and if I am in sin, then any time that I am in sin, I cannot serve in the Spirit, and any work and service done in the energy of the flesh is worthless and lost forever. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 5 and verse 10, he says this, for we must, and then underscore in your mind the next word, for we must all say this morning, God is speaking to me. God's talking about me. You can say that if you're a Christian. If you're born again, you can say God is speaking about me in this verse. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, or you could translate it worthless. There are some works that in God's sight are worthless that the Christian does. Again, this is not the final judgment of the lost. This is the judgment seat of Christ. And those two words, judgment seat, is one word in the original, bematos. And so sometimes in shortened form, Christians will speak of the bema. Now, what was the bema? Well, the word had many usages in Koine Greek and in the Bible itself. It meant a step or sometimes a footprint. For instance, when um, Stephen stands up and he defends Jesus as being Lord from the Old Testament Scriptures, before they stone him to death, he relates, among other people, Abraham. And he says, but he, the Lord God, gave him, Abraham, no inheritance in it, referring contextually to the promised land, not even a foot of ground. And yet even when he has no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. If you remember, God prophesied to Abraham, Abraham, you're not going to get the promised land immediately. In fact, the Hebrew people are going to go down into Egypt for 400 years. And so Abraham, in the truest sense, never even inherited a footprint of the promised land. That's the same word, Bema, used here. It's also used of, of a step where you'd put your feet. Or sometimes it was used of a platform when a man would sit on a chair and the, the platform on which his feet rested or his feet stood if he stood up to speak. 
It was in many ways an ancient tribunal, an ancient courtroom where men would stand and, and they would judge people. The same word is used negatively of Pilate when Jesus was faced before him in Matthew 27, 19. There we're told while he, Pilate, was sitting on the judgment seat. Same word, Bamatos. His wife sent a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. In Acts chapter 18 and verse 12, Paul stood before Abamatos. We're told there, but while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. Identical word. Some of us in the last year stood at that very judgment seat, still preserved to this day, and Galileo's name is etched on some stone there. And so when Paul said that each one of us must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In any first century reader's mind, they knew that it was a place of evaluation. But Paul is also using the word positively because in the first century, it was also a place where the athletic games would be judged, where the judges would stand on it and they would rule whether someone won or lost the contest. And so here, with the same thing in mind in Romans 14 and verse 12, he says, so then each one of us must give an account of himself to God. Now hold your finger here in Romans and turn to the right to the next book over to 1 Corinthians, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is dealing with how a man, how a woman, how a Christian is to build God's church, that we're not to do it foolishly. And he compares two kinds of people. Those people who use worldly wisdom and techniques to build the church versus those who use the Word of God. My wife and I were just discussing yesterday of a dear pastor who's loved Christ and served faithfully, and it seems, it seems like all of the churches in the city of Florence are being emptied out to go to someone else's church. And the church they're going to, the pastor's using worldly wisdom. Don't have to debate that. Don't have to judge that. On Christmas Eve, he rewrote the Ten Commandments. And Paul reminds believers, in the context, pastors, but you could extend it to every believer, because while leadership is in the church is in view here in 1 Corinthians 3, God reminds us in two other passages, in 2 Corinthians 5 and in Romans 14, 12, our text this morning, that this is a judgment every Christian faces. And since the church is not a building but people, and you are a member of the church, as a member of the church, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Look at verse 10. According to the grace of God, 1 Corinthians 3.10, according to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But each man must be careful how he builds upon it. Paul reminded them, look, I laid the foundation. How did he do that? You learn from the Acts of the Apostles. He was the first to bring the good news to the Corinthians. He preached the gospel. They were saved by their faith in Christ. He laid the foundation for a church to be built. And the foundation, of course, is the most important part of any structure because the size, the shape, the strength of the superstructure depends on the foundation. And someone's life and ministry may seem to be very prosperous and big, but if the foundation is faulty and if the building materials are poor, in the end, it is going to fall apart. 
And many a church has grown using worldly techniques or it's grown on a personality and it all comes crashing down as we just saw in the northwest part of our country. So God wants us to be wise. And some of us know this text so well, there's, it's been a long time that we've stopped and done some personal evaluation. And we would be lot wise to hear what he has to say. Look at verse 11. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The church is not built on a man, it is built on Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So as Christians, some believers are using gold, silver, and precious stones to build their life, to help build God's church, and they are building a magnificent temple. Other believers are using wood, hay, and stubble, cheap, temporary, transient, combustible materials. And there's a stark contrast between the two. Gold, silver, precious stone represents something that is precious, magnificent, beautiful, valuable. Wood, hay, and stubble, something that is cheap, ordinary, temporary. But here's the point. Some are using good materials. Some are using poor materials. And the day is coming when God will evaluate. God is going to evaluate your service, my service in the local church. The verse says the fire will test the quality of each man's work. God's concerned with the quality of what we do. What would you rather have, a dump, load, dump truck load of hay or a handful of diamonds when tested with fire? I'd rather have a handful of diamonds. In fact, I'd rather have a bucket of diamonds. So while God's interested in quantity, he's also interested in, uh, in quality. He's also interested in quantity. And so he says, as he writes to Timothy, who was intimidated in his day as a pastor. And he's saying to Timothy, look, stay the narrow course. Doesn't matter what all these other preachers are doing. You run according to the rules. Doesn't matter how impressive their ministries look. You run according to the rules. And he says in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 5, and also if anyone competes, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. No one is crowned Timothy unless he plays lawfully. And if you break the rules, even though it may look like you're coming in first, the first will be last, as Jesus said. And the judgment seat of Christ is a place where God looks not simply at quantity, but at quality. He will scrutinize your service. And if what you did, you did in the energy of the flesh, it will be worthless in that day. The judgment seat of Christ someday will bring it all to light. Let's read those verses again. Look again at verse 11. No one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If you are here today and you're not saved, then you're building on the wrong foundation. And the most important thing you could do before you leave today would be to get your life right, to know that heaven is your home and that all of your sin, past, present, and future has been forgiven. But with that said, if you are a believer, if any man builds on the foundation, the Lord Jesus, with gold, silver, precious stones, again, beautiful, very costly things, then this other category, wood, hay, and stubble, each one's work will become evident. It is to be revealed. It is to be tested, you could render it, with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality 
of each man's work. That is whether it's of the quality of wood, hay, and straw, or of the quality of gold, silver, and precious stones. Now look at verses 14 and 15. If any man's work, which he has built on it, the foundation remains, that is, it's able to withstand fire. And by the way, this is not purgatory. It's not the persons who are burned. It's the works that are burned. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. This is one of the most sobering texts in all of the New Testament. I don't know how much or how often you think about it, but it's important to think about it because many Christians have concluded, well, since I'm saved and I'm, I'm on my way to heaven and I have a place promised for me, it really doesn't matter how I live. And they think, I'm not going to give an account since all my sin is forgiven for the way I've prayed. I'm not going to give an account whether I've tithed or not. I'm not going to give an account for whether I've served. I'm not going to give an account for whether I've sacrificed. It will make no difference because I am saved and I have a place promised for me in heaven. And my friend, this text teaches us, among others, that there is coming a time of evaluation called the Bematos, the judgment seat of Christ. If any man's work... Verse 14, which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. You know, some Christians in their ignorance think that heaven will be the same for everyone. But the Bible is clear that while heaven is a wonderful place for any who attends, it will not be the same for everyone. There are degrees of rewards. Now, God says here, each one, each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Verse 8 of chapter 14 of Romans. Each one of us. I can't receive your reward and you can't receive my reward. We will be judged according to our own labor. Jesus at the end of the Bible says, behold, he's getting our attention. Behold, I am coming quickly. That means suddenly could happen today. You could die today or Christ could come back today. Behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. He said it this way in Matthew's gospel in the 16th chapter. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and of his angels and he will recompense every man according to his deeds. Now, you're not saved by works. Your works do not take you to heaven. But the Bible is very clear that your works will follow you to heaven. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. That verse makes absolutely no sense at all. A verse written to those who are born again, if heaven is the same for everyone, it would make no sense at all. But we will see things differently at the judgment seat of Christ. Things that look important to us now will not be important to us then. Now, let's apply this passage of Scripture before we leave. Let me give three applications as we close. Three truths that I've already covered, but I want us to think about them this week. First, if you are saved, someday you will give an account. Don't miss that. If you don't get anything else out of the sermon, realize that even if you are saved, someday you will give an account to Jesus Christ in heaven. All Christians will give an account of their deeds, and we need to be sure that we're storing up our treasures in heaven We need to live with an eternal perspective. To listen to this or any of the messages in the Romans series, use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app for smartphones and tablets, 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also call and request Guarding Our Behavior, program ROM66, available on CD or DVD. Our phone number is 877-787-7478. And when you call or visit us online, why not consider giving a one-time or ongoing gift to support the ministry of Search the Scriptures? Your gift is vital in helping us to continue teaching the Word of God and in reaching those who don't yet know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Tomorrow we conclude our look at Guarding Our Behavior. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.